You're listening to a sermon from LifeGate Church of Seguin, Texas. This sermon was preached by Joshua Jordan, who serves as the lead pastor at LifeGate Church. Find out more about us at www.lifegateseguin.com. have a Bible with you, you will make your way to the gospel according to Luke. Today we're going to be in chapter 5, looking at verses 1 through 11. As you make your way there, I want to tell you about a gift we would like to give you. I love to give away gifts. My family can tell you that's something I love to give gifts, and this is a gift we want to give you. Um, Actually, it's, it's a gift from our dear friends at Desiring God. Um, some time ago, we gave you a gift. They gave us the, the wonderful book about our spiritual disciplines. When you leave today, if you would just take one per family, and once again, if you're not going to read this, it's going to sit on the shelf. Um, we, 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 we want to be good stewards. This is a book by John Piper. It's a devotional called 50 Reasons Why Jesus Came to Die. Um, each, each day, it's just two pages where he takes an element of the cross and says, here's the impact. And for people who, as a church, with our history of just celebrating and proclaiming all that Christ did on the cross, um, we, we, we um, can, if we're not careful, just use language like being cross-centered in the gospel, but we can lose sight of the wonder of the cross and the implications of the cross. So we want to give this to you as you prepare then into Holy Week. Um, and making your way up to Palm Sunday and then to Easter Sunday. We just hope this will benefit you. So when you leave today, they're out there on um, a shelf in the foyer. Please, if this would bless you, please take one. All right, Luke chapter 5, verses 1 through 11 is our text this morning. I want to invite you to follow along, church, as I read God's holy, inspired, and authoritative word. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he, being Jesus, was standing by the lake at the lake of Gennesaret. And he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land, and he sat down. And he taught the people from the boat. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. But at your word, I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. He and all who were with him were astonished 
at the catch of fish they had taken. And so also were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, do not be afraid. From now on, you'll be catching men. When they had brought their boats to the land, they left everything and followed him. Let's pray. Father, it is your desire to speak to us now through the preaching of your word. You have given us your word. And Lord, you have given us the spirit of God to illuminate the word. So Lord, we want to benefit from all that you want to say to us. So we now ask for your help. Lord, would you do a supernatural work in our midst and take this familiar story and to take these words from the pages of Scripture and to magnify Jesus before our eyes. And may the result of this message be that we are transformed into his likeness. Father, may you be glorified in all that is said and done. May your church be built up. May those who are lost come to saving faith. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. C.S. Lewis, the late British scholar, author, and Christian apologist, came to saving faith at the age of 33 while teaching at Oxford. He went from an atheist to a Christian. Lewis today is still known for the many books that he wrote. And I think if you were to compile a list of his most influential books, at the top of that list would be his fictional series, The Chronicles of Narnia. Whether you like the books or have read the books, they would be at the top of the list of some of his most endearing work. See, the beauty and the brilliance of those seven stories, it comes down to the way in which Lewis communicates deep, spiritual truths in a simple and yet inspiring way that even a child can understand. Lewis was a brilliant man, and he was able to communicate deep, profound spiritual truth in a simple way and an inspiring way that, that children could understand. That's, that's the beauty of that series. And of these seven books, the most important and popular one is The Lion the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Lewis, in this book, introduces us to four children, the Pevensies, named Peter, Susan, Edmund, and their youngest sibling, Lucy. In short, what happens in this story is that these four kids are, are, are needing to flee London because the world is at war and they are sent to their uncle's house to stay while London is being bombed. And one day while playing a game of hide-and-seek in this massive house of their uncles, Lucy, the youngest, goes into an empty room and there she finds a wardrobe and thinks that's going to be a great place to hide. And as she goes into this wardrobe, it leads her into a land called Narnia. Eventually, 
her siblings come to find her and they make their way into the wardrobe and they join her in Narnia. And while they're there, they find themselves in great danger. They find themselves in great danger in Narnia because of this character called the White Witch who holds Narnia under her spell. Lewis describes her spell is like this. It's always winter, but never Christmas. <laughs> so all of a sudden, Narnia is under this spell. And the only one who can come to the aid of the children, and the only one who can come to the aid of the people of Narnia is the great lion named Aslan. And in this story, Aslan symbolizes Christ. And of the four children in this story, Lucy and Aslan have a special bond. It's a bond that carries on from this story into other stories. Now, by the end of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, the four children leave Narnia. They make their way back to England and to the house of their uncle. So then when you read the book Prince Caspian, you discover that the four children who we met in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, they, they've grown up significantly. Many years have passed. And in the story of Prince Caspian, Lucy and her three siblings eventually return to the land of Narnia. And One of the high points of the story of Prince Caspian is when Lucy is re reunited with the great lion Aslan. Upon seeing him, she says, Aslan, you're bigger. And Aslan responds, that's because you're older, little one. Not because you are, said Lucy. No, I'm not. But every year you grow, you will find me bigger. What a beautiful image. Opposite of what typically happens to us when we are little, things appear bigger, and as we get older, we see those same objects and like, well, that's not big at all. Not so with Aslan. As Lucy got older, Aslan got bigger. The point Lewis was making is really profound. The point he is illustrating is that should be true of us. Jesus should get bigger in our eyes as we grow older. My burden for each person here is that Jesus will become larger in our eyes and Jesus will enlarge our heart for his kingdom as we make our way through the gospel according to Luke. That is one of the aims of this study, this reflection of the Gospel of Luke. But each week, as we make our way along, and as we do a little bit more life, the Jesus will get bigger. Now that brings us back to our text, Luke chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. In this text, we meet a man named Peter. 
We heard about him just in passing last week for the first time. And we're going to watch now as this man named Simon Peter becomes a close disciple of Jesus. And both today and in the weeks ahead, Jesus is going to become bigger in Simon Peter's eyes. See, the story that's recorded here in Luke 5, 1 through 11, is one of those occasions in which Peter saw Jesus as bigger than he already was. He's bigger in Peter's eyes in light of this event. And because Jesus becomes bigger in Peter's eyes, Peter went deeper in his discipleship with Christ. And my hope is that this text will help Jesus be bigger in our eyes so that we can go deeper in our discipleship with Christ. If you're taking notes this morning, this is our outline. We're going to break up this text into three sections. Verses 1 through 3, the setting. Verses 4 through 7, the miracle. Verses 8 through 11, the response. Let's begin with the setting. Verses 1 through 3. And I just want to begin reading verse 1 again. Luke tells us on one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret. Now, up to this point in Luke's gospel, we, we've only heard about Jesus traveling around and teaching and preaching in synagogues. If you look up to verse 44 of chapter 4, we, we are given a summary statement where that's what we're told. Jesus traveled around to synagogue to synagogue and he taught. But here in chapter 5, verse 1, we're told that Jesus also taught in public settings outside of the synagogue. And on this particular occasion, Jesus taught right outside the town of Capernaum. This was a town known for fishing. This fishing was the predominant trade. And Jesus is essentially at the Sea of Galilee. Luke just calls it the Lake of Gennesaret. He's here at the Sea of Galilee, right outside of Capernaum. And what we know from modern archaeology is that there seems to be a vicinity outside of Capernaum near the Sea of Galilee that it makes you wonder, is Luke describing here? Because archaeologists have found a natural amphitheater where the land slopes down into a natural bay. And commentator James Edwards says, Israeli scientists have verified that this bay can transmit a human voice effortlessly to several thousand people on the shore. So that's most likely what's going on. Jesus is in an area that just becomes a natural amphitheater, and he's teaching, and here comes the crowds. Why are the crowds coming to him? Well, Luke tells us. To hear the word of God proclaimed. Notice Luke's emphasis. He doesn't say they came to see Jesus. Well, they, they were. He doesn't say they came to see his miracles. I'm sure they did. But he says they came to hear 
God speak through Jesus. So what did Jesus do as the crowds gathered? We're told he turned the fishing boat into a pulpit. Verses 2 and 3. And he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land. And he sat down and he taught the people from the boat. Jesus asked Simon, whom, remember from last week, who he already knows. This is not Peter's first time to meet Jesus. This is not his first encounter. He has probably been with Jesus, seen Jesus already do a miracle of healing his mother-in-law. Jesus asked Simon, could I borrow your boat? And notice that Luke didn't record the message Jesus gave that day from the boat. Actually, what he tells us next is surprising. It's both personal and it's powerful. That brings us to the miracle, verses 4 through 7. In verse 4, here's what Luke does. He, he after setting up this story of how the crowds have come out, Jesus is teaching them from this boat. Luke pans from where he had panned out from the crowd. He zooms in. And he shows us what occurred between Jesus and Peter. Verse 4. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep and let down your nets for a cat. Now, when Matthew and Mark record this same story in their gospel account, they don't single out Peter. They, they include James and John, Jesus speaking to all three of them. So why did Luke single out Peter? Well, you will have to wait for another day. I will share that reason in a future message when we come to chapter 6 and the setting, uh, setting apart of the 12 apostles. But there's a reason Luke's highlighting Peter's roles. Here's what we do need to know. Luke was aware that James and John were present and that they were participants in this event. How do we know that? He mentions them in verse 6, and he calls them by name in verse 10. So Luke doesn't have an opposite account than Matthew and Mark He's just doing something unique. He's singling out Peter. Those this event took place with several men. He's highlighting Peter's role. And then listen to Peter's response to what Jesus asked him to do. Verse 5. And Simon Peter answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. But at your word, I will let down my nets. So Jesus says to Peter, after he teaches from this boat, we're not told what he said. He says to Peter, and obviously James and John, go out, throw out your nets again, and get ready to catch fish. And Peter hears this and says, Master, We've been out all night. We have not caught a thing. 
Now think about this. What Jesus asked these fishermen to do was rather audacious, okay? <laughs> these are professional fishermen. <clears throat> now, there may be some in here this morning, you like to fish, you've gone fishing, but I don't know of any professional fishermen here this morning. These guys are professional fishermen. This is what they do. So when they say, we've been out all night, we've caught nothing, you could imagine the, the look on their face and the exasperation in their voice were like, we're to do what? Uh, I, Jesus, stay in your lane. You know, it's almost like, okay, you're the good teacher. We're the fishermen. We know what we're doing. This is a very audacious claim. Pay attention also to the statement that they fished all night. That's enlightening. Why did they fish all night? Well, that actually informs us of when the fish were out. They're out at night when they can't see the net. Now what's Jesus asking them to do? They've been out all night. And they've caught nothing when the net's invisible. Now I want you to go out when the net's visible. And I want you to catch some fish. <laughs> you should be able to kind of understand where Peter's like, uh, Master, I, 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 I don't think it's going to work that way. See, Jesus is now asking these men to go in broad daylight, cast out their nets, and try again. But look what Peter does next. After stating, Master, we told night and took nothing. But at your word, I will let down the nets. After voicing his displeasure to Jesus, notice what Peter does. He chooses to obey the command of his master. Jesus, I'm going to do it. I would just like to voice my opposition. If it matters to you, I would just like to file my complaint. I don't know why you're asking me to do that, but I'm going to do it. And then look what happens next. And when they had done this. They enclosed a large number of fish and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boats to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats so that they began to sink. Listen, not only do they catch some fish. They catch such a large amount that Luke informs us that their nets were breaking and the two boats were sinking. Now, I love Luke's description. Luke, Luke could have just simplified this and said they caught a massive amount. The end, period, move on. But he doesn't do that. Instead, he did something I, I love. And, it, and it, it, it meant to affect us. I heard C.S. Lewis comment on what I think Luke is doing here. At one point, a young girl from America wrote to him to seek advice on how to be a good writer. He wrote back to her, and he shared five rules for writing well. Listen to number four. In writing, don't use adjectives which merely tell us what you want us to feel about the things you're describing. I mean, instead of telling us a thing was terrible, 
describe it so that we're terrified. Don't say it was delightful. Make us say delightful when we read that description. Friends, that's exactly what Luke has done in verses 6 and 7. He doesn't just say, oh man, they caught a lot. He wants us to read it, and all of a sudden we go, oh my. Not only did Jesus keep his word, but Jesus exceeded their expectations. They probably didn't expect to catch hardly anything, and they catch so much, probably more than they had ever caught before. And, And our response is that we should be overwhelmed and amazed at this large catch of fish. Now, notice the effect that this catch had on Simon Peter. That brings us now to the response, verses 8 through 11. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O you get what just happened? The large amount of fish caused Jesus to grow larger in Peter's eyes. Where others saw a lot of fish and were like, man, that's amazing. You should have this guy all the time. Peter sees it. And he hits the ground. Jesus, who had healed his mother-in-law, is now bigger in his eyes. He sees the broken nets and the almost sinking boats, and it affects him. Notice what Peter does. He goes from calling Jesus Master to Lord. Earlier, When Jesus asked Peter, throw out the nets, the master, that's what you desire. Now he says, you're the Lord. And anywhere in Luke's gospel up to this point where the word Lord has been used, it's equated with God. Notice what Peter's doing. He bows down. He falls down before Jesus and he confesses how unworthy he is to be in the presence of Jesus. But Peter wasn't the only one amazed by what just occurred. And we see that in verses 9 and 10 where we're told many others that observed this were amazed, including James and John. And that brings us to the rest of verse 10. Where Jesus says to Simon, do not be afraid. From now on, you'll be catching men. After reassuring Peter with that statement, don't be afraid, listen to what Jesus told Peter and the other disciples that were with him, like James and John. He said, from this point forward, brothers, you are going to be catching men. Do you see what just occurred? 
in the boat which Jesus used as a pulpit, it's now become a parable. The boat started as a pulpit. Now it becomes a parable for Peter and the other disciples to understand this profound truth. See, at this moment, Peter and James and John were being commissioned by Jesus to join him in the work of making disciples. So where the boat started out as a pulpit, it becomes this parable. of All that Jesus just did in front of Peter and all of these guys, Jesus uses this opportunity to say, Peter, in light of what you've just seen, I'm going to ask you to go and catch men. Meaning, I want you to go and make disciples. Now, we know that that's what's happening because in verse 11, Luke finishes off this story by telling us that when they brought their boats to the land, they left everything and followed him. That's the language of discipleship. So these guys who knew Jesus are now disciples of Jesus and have been commissioned by Jesus. Now here's the question. What do we take away from this event in the life of Jesus and Peter and the other disciples? What what are we meant to do with this story? Well, I think there are four things being communicated here for us to apply, and all of them involve discipleship. See, at this point now, Luke's going to begin to emphasize something and to teach something that has not really been emphasized to this point. So far in Luke's gospel, we've heard all about Jesus Christ and who he is. Now, we are going to begin not only to keep seeing who is Jesus, but what does it mean to follow Jesus? Peter is now introducing us to the topic of discipleship. Peter, James, and John, and others are now going to begin to follow Jesus. It's one thing to know who he is, but the question remains, okay, if that's who he is, what does that mean for us? Well, the Gospel of Luke is going to lay it out in many ways, showing us what does it mean to follow Christ. So there are four things we can learn about discipleship. Two of them have corporate implications for us. And two of them have individual personal application. And I think that's fitting because when you look at the text, at times Jesus is addressing more than just Peter. But he's also speaking directly to Peter. So I think there is reason to see both corporate and individual application in this text. Let's start with the first point of application. One of the things we can take away from this story In Luke chapter 5, verses 1 through 11 is this. Our mission as a church is to make and mature disciples of Jesus Christ. Our mission as a church is to make and mature disciples of Jesus Christ. See, I believe Luke chapter 5, verses 1 through 11 communicates a divine Drama reflecting the mission of Jesus. And what is the mission of Jesus? To make disciples. 
That was Jesus' mission, to make disciples. Jesus was making Peter his disciple in this story. And in turn, he was calling Peter and James and John to go and make more disciples of Jesus. Now, what we'll discover in the weeks ahead is that the 12 apostles formed the foundation of the church. The apostle Paul says in Ephesians 2.20 that the apostles are the foundation of the church. And Peter is one of the 12. So I believe we can say that what they were commissioned to do, the church is commissioned to do. So Peter's told to do something. We may not do it exactly because we're not Peter, we're not one of the 12, but I think because they set the foundation for the church, what they do, we're commissioned to do. And I believe Peter and the other disciples were commissioned to make disciples. That's what it means to be fishers of men. Now, why do I emphasize that? Because the church is not called to make converts, but disciples. Jesus wasn't just after. How many people can walk an aisle and say a prayer? How many people can fill up a building? How many people can sign a commitment card? Jesus was after disciples. And our mission is to make disciples. And discipleship occurs when people hear the word of God and seek to obey it. And if you really think about Peter's response, Peter is the poster child in this moment of what true discipleship looks like. Think about it. He responds to the command of God with obedience. He worships Jesus. He publicly acknowledges who Jesus is and he joins Jesus on mission. That's what a disciple is. Peter models for us right here. He responds to the command of Christ. He falls down and worships Christ. He publicly publicly acknowledges who Jesus is and he joins him on his mission. Mission. Now why? Why did I make the point that making disciples is the mission of the church? Maybe upon saying that it is our mission to make a mature disciples, you go, well, sure. That's, that's clear. Then why, why do we need to be reminded of this? Here's why. Because as a church, every church faces this. We will be pulled and tugged in a number of different directions to give our time and our attention to other good and profitable activities that may not be in keeping with our mission. There are a lot of good things we could be doing. There are a lot of profitable activities we could be about. But we're not called as a church to do all those things. We must, we must make disciples. And see, Jesus faced the same problem, didn't he? It goes back to the text from last week that Pastor Odom preached on. Luke chapter 4, verses 42 through 43. And when it was day, he departed and went into a desolate place. And the people sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving. 
But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to other towns as well. For I was sent for this purpose. Jesus knew what his purpose was, and everyone else didn't always. In the context of this story, if you remember back to last week, Mark tells us he was healing people, but he didn't get to finish healing everybody. And he goes away, and he's praying, and everybody comes and says, Jesus, there's still work to do. And Jesus goes, healing people's great. It's a profitable activity. That's not what I came for. It's a wonderful thing. But no, I'm going to go ahead and go to the next town. See, Jesus faced the same problem. So how did Jesus gather the crowds? He did it by teaching the word of God. That's what gathered the crowds. He taught the word of God, and we too must gather around the word of God. We as a church must proclaim the good news to all people. We must call all people to place their faith in Jesus Christ, to repent of their sins, and to obey the Lord by living for him. That is our mission. Now, there there are implications of discipleship for every Christian. But as a church, we, we are gathered around the teaching of God's word for the purpose of people putting their faith in Christ and then obeying the Lord by living for him. So that's the first thing we take away. Here's the second one. Once again, a corporate application. Jesus fulfills his mission through us. Jesus fulfills his mission through us. See, the miracle of catching a multitude of fish is a parable for the church today. It wasn't just a parable for Peter and the disciples. It's a parable for us today. Peter and the other disciples did not catch the fish by skill, by experience, by chance. They caught the fish according to the word of Christ. Actually, it was on their own strength and own energy and own experience that they fished all night and caught nothing. It was when Jesus says, here's what I want you to do. Obey. And the nets are breaking and the boats are sinking. And notice how many fish they caught. In verse 6, we're told they caught a large number. That phrase in the English is actually a single word in the original language. It's the word multitude. And you know why that's important? Because over a dozen times in the book of Acts, we hear about the multitudes coming to Jesus. For example, in Acts 5, verse 14, And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. Acts 14, 1, In Iconium, a large number, a multitude of people believed, both Jews and Greeks. See, Jesus told Peter and the other disciples that they would be catching men, not fish. And when we turn to the book of Acts, guess what we see? Which is, by the way, the sequel of Luke's gospel. When we turn to the book of Acts, we see that multitudes came to Christ through men like Peter and other disciples. So when Jesus says, I want you to go out and catch men, this Example in the boat was to strengthen their faith. Because in the same way I can provide multitudes of fish, Peter, one day I'm going to provide multitudes of disciples by you opening up your mouth and being obedient. 
And sure enough, that's what occurs. And this should remind us that making and maturing disciples is not something we do on our own. We don't make disciples by our own wisdom. We don't do it by persuasion or strategy. Christ makes disciples through us. LifeGate, this is meant to stir our faithfulness. I've been praying this for some time, but I've been praying it really really strategically this week. I've just been praying that as our city multiplies, that God would use LifeGate to multiply disciples. But God is not going to multiply disciples. Or if God is going to multiply disciples, here's the first thing that must happen in us. We must have faith that He will use us. Now that brings us to the personal application. What do we do with this for ourselves. Well, here's one point of application that we can, we can just miss, but I think it's important. Discipleship has a personal payoff in the end. <laughs> it's good to be reminded of that. One of the things we discover throughout the pages of Scripture that will be highlighted a numerous, numerous times in Luke's gospel is the fact that God rewards our obedience to Him. There's a personal payoff. Think back to the scenario presented in Luke 5.5. 5. Peter obeyed. And Luke tells us, and the fish started. Simon obeyed Jesus, even though what Jesus called him to do was contrary to his experience or even to common sense. He obeyed the Lord. And we are told he caught a large catch. Do you see the point Luke is getting across without coming out and saying it? Your obedience to God and your desire for joy are not at odds. They work together. How often do we think, well, I've got to choose my happiness or obedience. And the Bible time and time again says, those two aren't at odds. They work together. They work together. What we'll discover in the days ahead as we make our way through Luke's gospel is how costly it is to follow Jesus. Jesus is going to require a lot and ask a lot. Much sacrifice is required to be a disciple. But at the same time, great reward awaits those who follow Jesus. And if we don't remember that, we'll just see the call to sacrifice and say, is it worth it and one of the things the gospel of luke is seeking to do is saying absolutely every bit of it from the big things to the small things when jesus says it and you do it you will be rewarded in ways you could never imagine it may not be here on earth it may be in heaven but jesus will never see your obedience 
and say, well, great. I just want you to sacrifice for that. He will always bless our obedience. That brings us to the final point of application. Humility before Christ makes him bigger in our eyes. Want Jesus to be bigger in your eyes? Humility before Christ makes him bigger. Think about Peter's words again. Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. What's Peter doing in this moment? He's humbling himself before Jesus by confessing his sinfulness and his unworthiness. And notice the outcome of his act of humility. As Peter got smaller, Jesus got bigger. See, it wasn't just the fish that made Jesus bigger. It was Peter's awareness of his sinfulness and his unworthiness and the fact that Jesus would even be in the boat with him and would use him made Jesus far bigger in his eyes. Friends, this is the secret of discipleship. We're going to see it in Luke's gospel time and time again. As we grow smaller in light of the awareness of our own sin and our unworthiness before God, guess what's going to happen? Jesus will always grow exponentially larger in our That's always going to happen. I love what the late J.I. Packer said. He says, the index of the soundness of a man's faith is the genuineness of self-despair from which it springs. The index of the soundness of a man's faith is the genuineness of self-despair from which it springs. Want to know if somebody has true, sound faith? Do they have a genuine self-despair? I am unworthy. I am sinful. But here's the question. If Jesus is not growing larger in your life right now, you love him, you believe in him, don't doubt anything you've been taught, but you can't remember the last time he grew larger in your eyes. Could it be due to the fact that you have not humbled yourself before him in a while? When's the last time before Christ, whether physically or in your heart, you fell down at his feet and said, I am such a a sinner, but you are such a great Savior. See, nothing will humble us in the presence of Christ like the unrelenting grace of Christ. 
You know what's going to humble us before Christ more than just a sober awareness of our sinfulness? His grace. Think about Jesus' words to Peter. Peter falls down. He says, depart from me. That's the, that's the language of Isaiah 6. You're a holy God. Depart from me. I, I can't even be in your presence. And Jesus says, fear not. Peter, I will not cast you out or stop using you for my kingdom. If anything, today you're going to catch other men just like you. Oh, what grace was on display in the life of Peter. He was a man who was humbled by sinfulness and then more humbled when he's aware of his sinfulness and Christ doesn't say, Peter, you make a good point. I probably should leave. He says, oh, Peter, you don't know the half of all the things you're about to do. Peter, right now you can't see it, but I see you on the day of Pentecost. You're going to preach to thousands after you denied me before men. Peter, I'm not, I'm not done with you. And I'm not using you because you're worthy. I'm using you because I am full of grace. And that should not only humble men like Peter, but such grace on display in our life should humble us. His grace ought to humble us. And when it does, listen, when it does, it will magnify Jesus. And it will make him bigger in our eyes. And it will cause us to love him more. May that, may that be the effect of this passage this morning. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for this particular story in your word that you inspired and preserved for our good. May we now take what we've heard and respond. Help us to respond, Lord. And that response may look different in light of who we are and where we are and the challenges we're facing. But may no one here this morning hear this message and simply just walk away unaffected. May we all leave with the question, how do I apply this to my life? Help us to do that now. Thank you for magnifying Jesus in front of us today. May he be big in our life tomorrow and the next day. As we live out in the world, in our workplace, in our homes, and our neighborhoods. May we continue to make much of him for the glory of your name.